Welcome back to the Arab Tyrant Manual podcast. Did you miss us? It's been a long hiatus, but it's good to be back. I'm Ahmed Gatnash of Kawakibi Foundation, and I'm kicking off the new run of the podcast with a discussion with Yad al-Baghdadi. We're reflecting on this podcast that we started exactly three years ago to the day, how far we've come since, and where we're going from here. Also, there's some US election talk. Impossible to avoid it these days, I'm afraid. Hey, Yad, how's it going? Not bad. I mean, we're, uh, we're recording this episode to be released on the third year anniversary of the first episode ever of the Arab Tarnet Manual. And it's weird that it feels both it feels like it's it's a decade. I mean, three years feel like feels like such a long time, given what yeah. what those three years looked like. But at the same time, it feels like just just yesterday in a certain way, you know. Um, but I thought I thought it's a good idea since you know we've been on hiatus for a while. Um, a lot of things have been going on with us internally. We've been. I mean, I think we'll, I think we'll we'll get to that uh, over the course of this uh, episode. Uh, but I think it's a good idea to not only look at the future, but also look at the past and look at uh, the our work really and where it's heading. In the you know where this is the first weekend after uh, Biden won the U.S. election. Uh, I mean, at least he's the apparent winner. I think uh, it's clear to everybody, including probably even Trump himself, that he's he's lost. And it's really interesting because the first episode we ever did was about uh, Saudi Arabia. It was about Mohammed bin Salman. And as you know, Mohammed bin Salman could not have done what he did so far if not for this very special and shady relationship with Saudi Arabia, sorry, with the with the Trump administration. Yeah, I think we went a lot into um, how the UAE and Saudi Arabia invested so heavily into helping Trump to win and then helping him in the aftermath. And of course, they reaped a lot from that. But why don't we start with the most immediate news and work backwards? Uh, because there's inevitably the, the deluge of hot takes about what the Biden victory means to everyone. And we, of course, have our own perspective on what that means to us. And I think that's different to a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, we talk a lot, me and you, Ahmed, um, about how it's kind of like we're almost resentful about the degree to which we have to center the United States when really we are a team that is focused on, you know, democracy and human rights and, and political freedom and dignity for the Middle East and North Africa, right? Uh, but it just happens because of the fact that our region is full of autocrats who really derive at least, you know, a fair amount of their legitimacy and power from a very special historical relationship with the West. At least this has been the case for a long time. Um, we can't afford to ignore what happens in U.S. politics. On the one hand, we don't want to center, I mean, we have to center our people. But it just happens that, you know, uh, whether we whether we like it or not, America is an important country. And I don't, th- I don't think, honestly, I don't think America... I'm not one of those who who believes that America is essentially problematic or essentially, you know, uh, a force for, uh, you know, uh, I believe America can be a force for good in the world and in the Middle East and North Africa. Of course, not to say that this this has been the case historically. I think it's quite the opposite, very obviously. But yeah, I mean, 
you you speak a lot about this that we need to you know we need to be more mana centric and i believe i mean i'm sure that if a few months ago i told you listen we like after hiatus the first episode we do has to be about america yeah it's been a source of frustration for a very long time because the nature of the world is such that everything gets sucked into the vortex of america's priorities and that happens a lot with the that happens a lot in the NGO space, in the human rights space. Even people who've never been to America may not ever intend to go to America, have nothing to do with their no connections there. By necessity, have to pay extremely close attention to the things that are happening in America, whether that happens to be uh, lobbying politicians and political bodies on human rights issues, trying to make alliances on that side of the Atlantic to help them, whether that's just um, trying to figure out what political trends in the US mean for uh, our own work in the region and whether it means uh, drones are going to be falling on our heads or it means uh, we're going to have a deck of cards stacked against us as we have over the last four years. The fact of the matter is we don't have the luxury to be able to tune out America and focus on what matters to us the most. So I guess let's let's take a few minutes. I think we can't we can't avoid this. So let's just take a few minutes and you know start with our very quick uh, very, you know, very quick insights. I don't want to say analysis, really. I think it's too too soon to say analysis. But you know, about what happened over the past week. And l- let me start, and then I'll hand over to you. But I think that the narratives that were floating around last Tuesday, uh, you know, on election day itself, have proven to be premature. So there's a lot of like gloom and doom among you know liberal circles, especially on Twitter. A lot of people who are kind of like, you know, because we were expecting this, we're expecting that a lot of Trump voters vote on the day itself uh, and the Democratic uh, uh, votes are going to be tallied. They're going to basically catch up in the days after that. But, you know, when people looked, a lot of people went online on that day uh, and they're looking at, you know, Trump winning with much wider margins. Basically, they're like, this is much a much tighter race than we expected. And, yeah, it is true that there, there has been appalling error again in the same direction this year. But, you know, you look you look now, we don't know what the final tally is going to be, but, you know, Biden is set maybe, I mean, eventually he will, if, if he actually keeps uh, the same states that he is leading in right now, he's going to end up with 306 electoral votes, right? So that's not close. I mean, it's not, it's, not a, it's, not, it's not a landslide, but it's not close. It's a convincing victory. I just compare this. I mean, if someone kind of like wakes up Someone, for example, uh, I don't know, like, you know, had like U.S. politics PTSD and didn't want to check Twitter or check uh, YouTube or check, you know, the news or anything like that for a few days. And then he, you know, and, th- and then you, you tell him, listen, Biden won by 316 uh, electoral votes uh, and, you know, like won back all of like flipped all of these, uh, all of these different states and got Georgia. Uh, I think people are think, oh, this is actually a pretty good outcome. So I, I think that there's a lot of like, I don't know, there's a lot of, I don't, I don't know whether to call it pessimism or whatever it is, or, or you know, insecurity. Uh, but yeah, this was, a, this, this was a convincing victory. I'm really interested by the fact that the impression of it being incredibly tight um, was a largely incorrect impression manufactured by a severely dysfunctional electoral process with, um, you know, it's been stressed to its limits by the fact that there's a pandemic going on. But the fact that remote voting or absentee voting was held back right to the end and couldn't be counted, and that 
so many important states are waiting until four days after the election to actually um, give an indication of which way the vote was turning. And it took until these last boxes of votes were released and tallied right at the end in order to uh, flip the count and put Biden on its lead. That's really the kind of thing that would be um, roundly condemned in other parts of the world. And it's quite staggering that this is happening in America. I mean, uh, there's a limit, right, to it, to, to how, how much you can suppress the vote. I mean, there, it's absolutely, it is a case over here of voter suppression, and voter intimidation. There's been a lot of that. Um, I mean, starting with, uh, you know, gerrymandering, the way the electoral, the electoral, uh, electoral college uh, system works, you know, the way that uh, the Senate works, or the Senate, Senate, uh, Senate elections work, etc. I mean, there's a lot to speak about there. But, you know, there's a, so long you have a democracy and people are guaranteed their vote. Yeah, you can suppress the vote, but at some point, I, I think there's a limit to that. I mean, you can see. I mean, uh, I don't know what the projections are are right now, but I think uh, I think that uh, Biden is going to win the popular vote by a bigger margin. I think by, by in absolute terms, I think he's going to win by what? Uh, I've 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 read, I've actually read like seven million when everything is tallied, which is quite enormous. I mean, if you think about it, it it's like. This is, and, and it's still considered like close, right? Which goes back to the whole issue with the previous election and the popular vote. But anyway, um, enough of um, the minutiae of voting. I think um, our main interest is in the bigger picture and zooming out. And two things have really been on my mind. One of them is what this means for the future of America itself in the long term, not in the next four years. And the other is um, the dynamics that this, this creates within our region and what it means for the cause of human rights and freedom going forwards in the Middle East. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we've been, we've been kind of like having these discussions back and forth, uh, you know, like just because the Arab Tariq Manuel is, is on hiatus doesn't mean that me and you don't discuss these things all the time. But um, my impression for several months, and, and I think is maybe it's, it's worth mentioning now that I've been telling you that Trump is set, is going to lose since March of this year. And my analysis was basically based upon the fact that he's facing a non-political enemy in the coronavirus and that he's simply incapable of doing the right thing as, as well as, you know, other factors, etc. But, you know, I had this, this, uh, almost, uh, I don't want to say conviction, but, you know, I was convinced that he is going to do poorly and this is like, he's going to, li- to lose this election. Um, I did not feel the same way, by the way, before March, like before the coronavirus, I, I felt that, you know, maybe Trump is going to win, uh, re-election and maybe it won't like it's going to be it's going to suck but uh, eventually as far as we're concerned we have to continue to center our people anyway look my, my impression here is that america is is going to have to do a lot of soul searching it's going to have to look inwards and i f- i felt that this this was the case even before trump so i think that regardless whether it is i mean trump of course had this Foreign policy, which was an absolute disaster, not only for America, but for the world and for the cause of human rights and, of course, for the Middle East and North Africa. Um, I, and I think we're going to be contending with the damage that was caused in those four years for decades to come. And we just have to live with the fact that this happened. Um, and we have to live with the consequences forever, right? But I think eventually, the even though the, the Trump years were, were basically a boon to dictators, 
they also signaled something about America, America which, has, which no longer wants to be overly involved in, in, in foreign adventures. I think there should be more emphasis on that but as well, because the fact of the matter is Trump's foreign policy was horrific and it was extremely involved, despite all the people telling us he would be anti-interventionist and anti-war. But the fact remains that a great number of the things Donald Trump did were not by any means a radical or even substantial departure from past administrations. Yeah, I think it's just the way he did he did these things, you know. So like, for example, withdrawing from Syria in a way that really, uh, really hurt, uh, you know, American credibility, American allies, the Kurdish, uh, you know, the, the, the Kurdish allies, America's Kurdish allies in, uh, in, uh, in Syria, and really, you know, upended the dynamics of the Syrian conflict in a way that I think is going to stay with us for a while. So, I mean, any American president, I think, would have wanted to avoid a long-term, drawn-out engagement in Syria. But I think they would have done it differently. They would have said, you know, like, let's, for example, I mean, if, if we had kind of a centrist, like, you know, like Biden, maybe they would have, like, they, they wouldn't want to wage war they, because the American people are simply sick and tired of that. And because it's, it's obvious that America doesn't, or like whenever America goes to war in, in this region, uh, it just causes more devastation, more destruction, and more resentment. But I'm just thinking that Trump, the way that Trump did it was just, it, it just exposed the fact that, you know, uh, it, it, it wasn't just the matter, the matter of we want to avoid uh, foreign entanglements, but really it was also, we don't, we don't give a damn about what happens to you guys. But my contention is basically that that's not a substantial difference from the Obama policy on Syria in the last few years, in which he effectively left the Iranian regime and the Assad regime and Hezbollah to their own devices to do what they wanted to the country. I mean, yeah, I'll give you that when it comes to, I mean, of course, uh, Obama's Syria policy was disastrous. Um, I mean, regardless what people think, I think, I think Obama is a decent human being, but I think when it comes to this particular point, it, it really it really boils my blood to the day whenever I think about you know the, the combination of Obama and Syria in the same sentence. I mean I don't think we're ever going to get over that. But look looking at other theaters, looking at you know uh, the relationship with uh, Gulf autocrats, for example, and especially Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. Th this was I mean and of course the Israelis, uh, especially uh, you know right the Israeli right wing. I think the damage done over there to the dynamics of the MENA and to the prospects of long-term stability are serious enough that really, I don't think it would have happened at all if, if not, not only this way, if it, if it wasn't for the Trump presidency. I think these guys really cashed out. I think in, in a certain way, I mean, you know that we're writing, we're writing this book right now. I think there's, there's a chapter left to write, which I'm supposed to write after the US elections, uh, which means I have to get busy writing it soon. And there's, there's a section of it in which I kind of like say, maybe at some point in a certain way, uh, the Trump presidency has not really changed history, but accelerated history in, in, a, in, a, in a specific portion of the world. In a, in a sense that these dictators really like, they exposed exactly who they were uh, and what they want in a way that would not be, would be far more subtle to the point of being almost hidden if not for Trump. I mean, Trump was basically an opportunity for a lot of people in America who were frankly racist. They become more comfortable and more confident about displaying their racism. I think there's a similar effect with dictators here where 
they felt they no longer needed to hide behind any kind of language. And they showed us exactly what they, who they are and what they want and what their plans are. And for that, maybe, maybe that's one of the upsides, you know, one thing that we can say, yeah, I mean, that's a good thing that happened. So again, to make the point just before moving on, Trump's presidency was an unprecedented boon to Middle East dictators. He doubled down strongly on the relationship with Saudi Arabia in a way that contains many improprieties that are going to be investigated in the months to come. Jared Kushner's relationship with MBS to start off with, the whole angle of uh, providing them cover as they um, made investments in U.S. media companies and used them to hack U.S. citizens on U.S. soil um, in a really flagrant way without even hiding their footprints very well, for example. Another is um, the total blind eye to the war in Yemen. But that stuff aside, this is more of a difference in degree than kind because this stuff was happening to a lower level even before the Trump presidency. The U.S. arms sales to Saudi Arabia to be used in Yemen continued unabated from before, for example. But I think this points towards a bigger trend, which is that the US is a country mired in existential contradictions at the moment. Um, and these contradictions are all over things which are uh, really kind of central to the very identity of the US. So the US sees itself as one of the most equal societies on earth, for example. But over the last year, it's been reckoning with the deep impact of its racist history and in a way that's still not complete. Another example is the US seeing itself as um, the land of equal opportunity. But again, over the last few years, it's been really, people have been trying to force the country to reckon with the inequality that exists within its economic system and the way that limits mobility between social classes, the way where you come from and who your family are affect more than ever your prospects in life. Um, and even, for example, the healthcare situation. And all of these things, I think, in the long run, this is stepping way back from the election and looking on the horizon of 20, 30, 50 years. I think the US is being confronted with these fundamental contradictions in such a way that they can't really be ignored anymore. They're too stark um, and they're in everyone's face and these things have to be answered. And like you said, that's going to take a lot of soul searching, but that means that's also going to take a very big turn inwards. And I think the nature of the US's role in the world over the coming decades is going to shift um, to accommodate that. And I think we're going to see a US which is far less interested in going around the world, policing it and solving other people's problems than it has been in the past. And I think there are also other dynamics that accelerate that. Um, for example, a lot of people still haven't realized this, but the US is now the biggest swing oil producer in the world. Gone are the days where the US's energy security was so fundamentally tied to the Middle East that everything that happened in the Middle East was seen as the US's backyard. Now the US can afford not to care about many of these countries, a point which was painfully driven home by Obama's um, rapid turn away from the region. Yeah, and I guess by when you, when you say the US, obviously you mean, um, when you said the US sees itself as, you know, as, as egalitarian and as a land of opportunity, I, I, of course you, you mean the US myth, the myth, the public myth that uh, uh, many Americans told themselves for a long time. And I think increasingly this is being challenged by Americans themselves. 
So yeah, it's basically uh, a disillusionment, but also a hope. And both of these things, I think, are kind of have become fundamental to the American identity. I think so that, you know, let's move on because we we could be talking about this for a long time. I think it's actually there's some value in us doing an episode just about America and how we as native MENA activists look at America. I think that's actually not not a, not a bad idea. But for now, I mean, the, the, the whole point that you mentioned, which is that uh, America is going to be onward, uh, inward looking for a while and is going to avoid foreign entanglements, regardless who's uh, who's the person in power, of course. Uh, I mean, hopefully um, a Biden administration will, will avoid, like will try to b- basically seek to change any kind of association with Trump policies. And Trump policies, of course, as you mentioned, were kind of like in, in certain ways, it was kind of like, it's the same pattern that existed before, but kind of on steroids. So, I mean, bottom line, Biden is not going to be as good for us as in our camp, people who are fighting for a better future for the MENA, a future of dignity and human rights and democracy. He's not going to be as good for us as Trump was for our dictators. However, the Biden years will be uh, an opportunity to build power. It's an opportunity for us to take a breath and to start to try to start to, uh, you know, recollect and maybe, you know, over the next five years, 10 years, we can build enough power to really be, to really start to really seriously challenge our dictators. And I want to really take it back to Saudi Arabia and to the first episode ever of the Arab Parent Manual. We were talking about Mohammed bin Salman. So this was like November 2017, right? In November 2017, Mohammed bin Salman was not really a household name. I mean, he wasn't really that much of a well-known name, even among the intelligentsia. We have reached a point right now, like, you know, we're, you know, uh, our organization is working with other organizations right now in the, uh, to, to do certain campaigns around the G20 event. Um, I mean, and of course, uh, a lot of our partners have been far more uh, prepared for this and they've invested even more, more than us. And in a, in a way, they've been more active than us in this space. But this highlights to me a certain, uh, something that I, I actually take pride in. We were working on Saudi Arabia and Mohammed bin Salman since before people knew that he was a thing. And we worked through this when it was extremely frustrating. I, I, you know, you remember how frustrating we were, how frustrated we were, and how frustrating that work was when nobody wanted to believe us. Everybody wanted to believe, like once, of course, like November 20, 2017 was the same, uh, the same month as the Ritz incident when he like, you know, rounded up all of his, uh, his cousins and put them in prison, right? And people were still like, people wanted to actually believe him. And they were like, you know, he, yeah, he's fighting corruption. That's the only way it can, it can be done. Two months earlier than that, uh, he had rounded up all the intellectuals and people still wanted to believe him. And he's like, yeah, they're extremists, you know, they're Wahhabists, etc. Of course, you know, falsely. Um, you know, uh, in August of that same year, uh, Jamal Khashoggi had, uh, you know, just joined the ranks of the people in the diaspora, you know, uh, diaspora activists. He became, uh, he, he chose self-exile. Uh, it was a very different world. And come March 2018, Hamad um, bin Salman was, you know, doing uh, this really PR um, uh, tour in the United States. Uh, he, you know, he met with, I don't know, like many people in Hollywood, many people among celebrities, many people in high society, etc. And uh, everybody loved him. I mean, everybody was eating it up. Everybody believed that he's the savior. And we were extremely frustrated at the time because like we we were trying to get people to listen they're like this is going to end badly he's bad news 
Nobody wanted to be on the same page as, as us at the same time at, at that time. But we worked on it. We continued to work on it, and eventually, we are in a situation right now where Mohammed bin, Sal- bin Salman is basically MBS means Mr. Bonso. He's basically his name is a synonym for not for uh, enlightened reform, but rather for the bloodiest, the bloodthirstiest, the thirstiest kind of tyranny. And the people who, you know, wanted to believe so much in him, either they're completely disillusioned right, right now and are kind of like working against him, or they've been kind of exposed as complete clowns. And this is, this summarizes to me the kind of work that we do uh, in our team at KF. Um, we are doing the kind of work which is dangerous, frustrating, and strategically long-term, like, you know, it, it, you know, this, the, we have a long-term view of uh, how, how these narratives are progressing. But we're doing it in such a way so that in two years, three years, five years, ten years, it's going to be, you know, a lot of people are going to be able to do the same work joyously, successfully, and the narrative is going to be well-established. Our narrative is going to be well-established. Uh, and so... You can again the, the 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 listener can imagine what what are we working on right now. We're not, I'm not going to spoil that part, uh, of course. Uh, but yeah, I mean, this is this highlights for me. It highlights our effectiveness. And this also connects to the previous discussion because nobody can really work on this stuff until they fundamentally acknowledge and believe that Joe Biden is not suddenly going to come and save them. The Joe Biden administration is not going to suddenly about face on five decades of uh, American policy towards human rights in the region, which often amounts to good talk and no action at best. Um, and it's going to be a long struggle to persuade the US to act out its values um, and address its own hypocrisies. But that's not what we're waiting for. And there's power we can build and there's action we can take immediately and on the long term as well. Uh, I, I think really, I, I don't I don't think we have that many expectations really of... Uh... Uh, we don't have that kind of expectation of a Biden presidency. I don't think like we we're going to be expecting Biden um, or America to come to our aid in any way. Uh, um, in a similar sense that you know Trump again, uh, as in a similar sense as Trump was really a great thing for the dictators. If we simply get an America which is not hypocritic, hypocritical about human rights, not hypocritical about its values, does not boost dictators, does not. Uh, sell weapons to dictators, does not, uh, you know, uh, give legitimacy to, to dictators, does not make our, our our world more dangerous and doesn't make our work more impossible to do. That itself would be a big thing. If we simply ha- get an America which is less damaging, less hostile to our cause in its foreign policy, I think that itself would be a big thing. And we're, like, we're not expecting America to be to be our savior, for sure. I mean, in the end, we are... Uh, our job is to center our people and to build power with them. So do you think we should talk about some of our priorities in the upcoming period and what we're working on? Uh, absolutely. But I think, uh, I, I think it's also important for us to, to keep a little bit, uh, uh, you know, to have, have strategic patience, I guess. I mean, there, there are certain things that will be revealed when they get revealed. There are certain things. That, yeah, that's the important caveat that we can't talk about everything we're working on for sometimes safety reasons exactly, as well. Exactly, and you know, like the work, the work, our work has been dangerous. I mean, of course, I'm living under police protection right now, which I wasn't in 2017 when the Arab Tribunal uh, first came out. But that aside, what can we talk about? 
Well, let, let me let me give an update about what we've been doing since um, uh, since since let's say summer of last year. I believe the the Arab Triumph Manual went on hiatus around then, right? It was I think the last episode was around summer of uh, of twenty nineteen, right? If if I want to run run down like twenty like uh, things since uh, since the Jamal Khashoggi murder, for example, like give a very quick very quick timeline. So Jamal Khashoggi, of course, was murdered. Uh, in October of 2018, we immediately started working on uh, on a number of projects related to that incident. Um, by February of 2019, we were collaborating with uh, an, an investigation team, basically associated with Jeff Bezos, on um, suspected hacking and blackmail. Uh, of course, the hacking is kind of suspected uh, later, uh, practically confirmed. Uh, the blackmail, of course, was far more, um, far less subtle, and um, it, it absolutely did happen. So it was really during that that period of time when I was working. It was mostly me, uh, you know, and of course you were working on this behind the scene. But it was mostly me who's basically uh, the public side of this of uh, of our team's activity was was centered around uh, my tweets, but also you know, uh, kind of behind the scenes collaboration with uh, with Bezos's team. It was around that time that I, I realized I uh, came to increasing, um, you know, realization that uh, I'm I'm in danger, uh, and that was kind of confirmed a few months later when um, uh, I was placed under police protection. Uh, the CIA essentially sent a tip to Norwegian intelligence saying that, you know, he's a target, he's a potential target of uh, Saudi Arabia. And I don't want to go over why and how and all of that. I just want to actually skip over that entire part and speak about how this affected our work, because everything became more complicated. You know, I had to change my physical location several times. I had to change the way that I communicate with people. Like I can't use a regular phone. Uh, my, the digital infrastructure, the digital uh, workspace around me completely changed. Physical, of course, lifestyle changed. Uh, and everything also became like like things that we we wouldn't think about before became important to think about. Um, and eventually, I think by by maybe August or September of 2019, we, me and you, had come to the conclusion that this is a defining moment for our team for KF. And we we can either from this point we either institutionalize and grow and scale up, or we can't we can't continue doing this. It's basically scale up or die. Um, and we ended up, of course, uh, deciding to um, expand our team and to get uh, to, to get the right kind of institutional funding, which was tricky, of course, because our team is very independent. And our work is like independence. Our independence is very important, not only for our um, uh, for our values, but also for our work. But, you know, we're, we're not going to reveal who our eventual funders uh, are. Um, but it took a lot of time. It took a lot of energy, a lot of effort. But here we are. We are now, um, you know, on uh, an aggressive institutionalization plan. We have good funding. We are about to start scaling up and about to start hiring and expanding our team. I'm not going to give away everything about you know what our plans are uh, are, are going to be, but uh, um, I think a lot of exciting things are happening. A lot of exciting things are coming. Um, and this team, which basically started with just me and you, Ahmed, is going to become much bigger and much more powerful, inshallah.
So that, to make it a little bit more concrete, also means that we're going to be surfacing several of our projects in the coming months. Um, first of all, starting with the Arab Tyrant Manual podcast, which will be back and on a more regular schedule than ever, listeners will be pleased to know. We've got a roster of really interesting and exciting guests coming, and we're also looking at ways to make it more interactive. So we're hoping to be hosting regular panels and discussions with the people who we have on the podcast and letting people in to uh, join the discussion and ask questions. We haven't figured out exactly how we're going to do that, but we're thinking to make that Patreon first. Um, so people who are our backers on Patreon will probably get um, first entry into that. Yeah, and no, I believe we're, we're thinking about a weekly schedule where... Um, uh, so, so this episode is coming out on the 14th of November, which is the third year anniversary of the Artarnet Manual. Um, but we're trying, we're going to try to keep, uh, uh, you know, keep pumping out one episode per week from here on, uh, which is, of course, it's a challenge, but I think, I think we can, you know, we can pull it off. Um, but the, the Artarnet Manual is not going to be the only kind of media uh, that, uh that we're going to be working on. I think there's there's more to come. Uh, I'd rather not reveal it yet, but uh, we are working on on some other uh, projects that I hope that we can uh, bring to you guys within a few months from here. And add to that the book, The Middle East Crisis Factory, which I'm al- almost hesitant to put a date on now, but we're hoping it's going to be in March of next year. Yeah, so the, the latest update... Um, really is that uh, the book is currently in editing. Of course, it took a long time. Uh, There's been a lot of disruption with the pandemic and stuff, Uh, but it's in editing. And the final chapter of the book, we decided to kind of like only write it after the US election. I I don't know if I'm going to like write it fresh because I have something written, but yeah, uh, one more chapter to to go and then we're ready to uh, for publishing really. Uh, So I would say sometime in 2021. And then just to be a tease, we have a bunch of um, extremely exciting but kind of controversial uh, projects that we've been working on for a long time. And we're really trying to figure out how we can surface them in a way that clarifies them rather than creating a whole, I don't know, confusion. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess simply by saying that, Ahmad, you've already made this controversial. <laughs> like people are like, what are these guys into, you know, with like... Uh, you know the, the Mohammed bin Salman intrigue, the palace intrigue, the the whole hacking and disinformation, and and uh, Jeff Bezos, and uh, and now and now this. Like, well, I can only say that this is far better for our mental health. Yeah, absolutely. Look, it's been it's been an interesting three years, man. I mean, it's been a very difficult three years, but also I think I think we've we've done pretty well. I think given, I mean, and I know, I mean. Uh, Sometimes, I mean, sometimes I, I kind of feel like the fact that I'm, I'm older than you, Ahmed, is 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 a great balance, an intergenerational balance in our team, right? I mean, you're you're born 1991, I'm born 1977, right? But that I think I think th- through these years, there's always been this push that you know you're you're like you want you want us to go faster and you want us to accomplish more, uh, and I'm kind of saying that you know like just let's let's just absorb the moment. Um, and I like this balance, you know, I like the balance between, you know, wanting to to uh, go faster and between wanting to be more strategic, more strategic. I think it's a good balance. Yeah, when I step back 
um, which I've only been learning to do fairly recently um, and try to exercise a bit of maturity. I do realize that we've achieved some pretty ridiculous things for the amount of resources we set out with. But I also hope at the same time that our greatest work is a long way ahead of us. Yeah, and I'm hoping I'm hoping that once we have a more regular uh, uh, schedule, we will be able to come back and revisit some of the stuff that we speak we've, we've spoken about. Um, maybe engage in like you know, ask me anything kind of AMA kind kind of uh, uh, episodes. Uh, we haven't really spoken about you know the whole Bezos affair, for example, the blackmail scandal. We haven't spoken about Saudi disinformation or Saudi hacking. I mean, we we we, we haven't really uh, you know we we didn't really dive into these topics which are kind of associated with our brand now and with you know with with our expertise i mean there's a lot to talk about and i'm excited about uh putting the arab Tarant manual back on schedule and really and also working on new uh i mean new podcasts and new uh new uh, uh products that you know that probably will will take a little bit longer to uh to surface but 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 they're coming so there you have it folks we're back Next week, we'll have details of the live session we're organizing to discuss this episode of the podcast. That's for you guys to tune into, and we're going to be doing that regularly going forward with our guests. The week after, we'll be back with a new guest doing what we do best, diving deep into authoritarian systems around the world and understanding how they work and why they work that way and what the most effective ways to resist them are. In the meantime... You can support us on Patreon to make it easier for us to keep doing what we do. And you can also share and review the podcast on whichever podcast app you're using, which makes it easier for people to discover us. See you next time.